Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark and there's no Bethan this week. Uh, She's not on holiday, she's just being a naughty little bitch so uh, she'll be back next week, fear not. Uh, I want to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. So the following people have signed up to support us in the past week and there's shitloads of you so I don't know what the hell's happened here. Uh, So thanks to CLP, Anna Royal, Vanessa Andrews, Karen McLeod, Leah B. Gary, Lauren Jett, Alison Brown, Carla Randall, Emma, Christine Woff, Steph, Jojo, Chris Davis, who increased their pledge, Julie, Hope Nesbitt, Jeff Meadows, Kate O'Brien, who listens all the way from Australia. And I also wanted to thank once again Mark Bromley. I think it's Bromley. Bethan said Bromley uh, last week. So Mark's wife, Hannah, got in touch with us just after we recorded last week's episode. So uh, we missed her message uh, in time for Mark's birthday. Uh, But we just wanted to say a massive belated happy birthday to Mark for Wednesday, the 18th of May. Um, I know that you listen with your wife, Hannah, and uh, you're both fans of the show. So I hope you had a fantastic day and thank you very much for the support. If you want to join all of these guys and about 400 other people that support us over on Patreon, it makes a massive difference to us and to the show as well. Um, So we have loads going on over there. Uh, If you just head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast, you'll see everything that we have uh, to offer on the different tiers of support. Uh, It's massively appreciated. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This week, we'll be taking a look at a heartbreaking case of barbaric terrorism, which occurred in the UK in the spring of 2017. This podcast is certainly no stranger to the subject of terrorism. We've covered some of the worst terrorist atrocities to be committed on UK soil in recent times, including the murder of Lee Rigby and the 7-7 attacks in London. Today, we're going to add another brutal act of terrorism to this list by taking a dive into one such incident that occurred relatively recently on the 22nd of May in 2017 in the wonderful city of Manchester. 
Despite the sheer and brutal nature of all acts of terrorism, it's true that some attacks punch much harder than others, and are thus much harder to leave behind. The case in question is indeed an upsetting one, not just because of the large death toll and the devastating impact it had on the innocent lives involved, but also due to the infuriating levels of cowardice, callousness and the senselessness of it all. This sense of frustration will only intensify later on when we get into just how many wasted opportunities there were to prevent the attack from occurring in the first place. The story begins on the cool and breezy evening of May the 22nd in 2017 when the streets of Manchester were buzzing with the energy and excitement of thousands of young concert goers who excitedly made their way towards a Manchester arena. Scheduled to perform that evening was Ariana Grande, a globally famous American singer, songwriter and actress who was due to make an appearance in the Manchester arena as part of her Dangerous Woman world tour. The event had been wildly anticipated for months. Ariana Grande has an enormous fan base in the UK, and of her half a dozen or so appearances around the country that spring, every last one was a sellout event. As legions of music fans, the vast majority of them children being accompanied by their parents, lined up outside the arena, the atmosphere was fully charged with the type of youthful joy, excitement and anticipation you'd expect from a large crowd of youngsters waiting to see their musical idol perform live for the very first time. It was at that point in the evening a very happy moment in life for the majority of people in attendance that night. The doors to the arena opened on time at 6pm, allowing a steady stream of men, women and children of all ages who had bought tickets more than a year prior to flow into the stadium and take their seats. Of the 14,200 excited souls who headed towards the stadium that evening, most of them were feeling happy, upbeat and excited to watch their beloved musical icon Ariana Grande put on the kind of electrifyingly high-energy performance that she'd become famous for. Spirits were high and the energy in the stadium leading up to the concert was magical as the thousands of mostly young concert-goers in attendance waited eagerly for the show to begin. However, amongst the crowd of happy, innocent young lives present that night was one sinister, insidious, cowardly individual who lurked amongst them. He wasn't there to party. He wasn't there for the music. He was there to cause unspeakable acts of violence to as many innocent people as possible in the most brutal and cowardly way imaginable. The highly excited crowd in the arena were in no way disappointed when at around 8pm Ariana Grande spectacularly took to the stage and commenced her mesmerising performance. The crowd screamed, sang, danced and enjoyed their young innocent lives without a worry or a care in the world. By all accounts the concert was a roaring success and was enjoyed by all until the show reached its end just after 10pm. When the show was over, Ariana Grande thanked her legions of adoring fans and left the stage, which prompted the 14,200 concert-goers to steadily start leaving the arena by following the designated exit routes, most of which led them through the City Room, the main foyer area of Manchester Arena, a public area where anyone, even those without tickets to the event, could gain access. By 10.30pm, the city room was packed full of people trying to exit the arena to begin their journeys home. 
Also waiting around in the city room were numerous parents of younger concert goers who were waiting for their children to come and meet them so they could be taken home safely. There were also several police and security personnel present to ensure that the arena was emptied in a safe and orderly fashion. The city room was at the very limit of its capacity in terms of human traffic at this stage, so not many people noticed when a tall, young man wearing a baseball cap and carrying a large rucksack gently pushed his way into the very middle of the crowd of people who were calmly trying to leave through the main exits. Then, at 10.31pm, when the city room pedestrian traffic was at its absolute peak, disaster struck. A devastatingly powerful bomb was detonated. The ensuing blast sent deafening shockwaves and deadly shrapnel flying in all directions, leaving a trail of death and mayhem in its wake. In just a few seconds, 23 people had been killed instantly, and more than a thousand had been seriously injured. In the immediate aftermath of the blast, the confused and terrified survivors experienced the kind of reactions you'd expect from a bomb attack of such savage magnitude. Shock, terror and disbelief, followed by sheer panic. Witnesses would later describe the scene as one of horrifying gore. Corpses, blood, severed body parts lay scattered and splattered in a large radius around the epicentre of the explosion as well as countless hundreds of seriously wounded casualties. The city room was filled with a thick haze of smoke and dust, making it impossible for the injured survivors to see or even breathe. Within seconds, all that could be heard throughout the piercing, agonised screams was the coughing and choking cries of the helpless and injured survivors as they struggled to find their way out of the city room alive. Needless to say... All hell swiftly broke loose as the scene erupted into chaos. According to evidence presented at the coroner's inquest, the bomb was strong enough to kill people up to 20 metres away. North West Ambulance Service reported that its entire fleet of 60 ambulances attended the arena, carrying multiple casualties to local hospitals and treating the wounded at the scene. The youngest victim of the attack was eight-year-old Safi Rose Roussos, who was just five metres away from the bomber when he detonated his device as she walked across the city room with her mother and sister. The tragic youngster had earlier enjoyed the night of her life, singing and dancing as she watched her musical idol perform. Safi miraculously survived the initial blast, but suffered massive blood loss from shrapnel wounds to her legs caused by the explosion. She was still conscious as the paramedics worked frantically to treat her devastating injuries. One of the paramedics who tried in vain to save her recalled Safi asking in the back of the ambulance, Am I going to die? Safi was transported by ambulance to Royal Manchester Children's Hospital at 11.23pm, 52 minutes after the bombing, but she was pronounced dead at 11.40pm. Safi's mother and sister survived with minor physical injuries. As is so often the case whenever tragedy strikes in the UK, the local communities in and around the scene immediately sprang into action, pulling together to support the victims and their families through this horrific ordeal. 
Residents and taxi companies in Manchester offered free transport or accommodation via Twitter to those left stranded at the concert, and several nearby hotels offered up free shelter for people displaced by the bombing, with police directing separated parents and children there. Manchester's Sikh temples, along with countless local homeowners and public venues, took to social media to offer up unlimited shelter and support to the survivors of the attack. Ariana Grande posted on her Twitter, Broken. From the bottom of my heart, I am so, so sorry. I don't have words. She then promptly suspended the rest of her tour and flew back to her mother's home in Florida. Meanwhile, however, on the opposite end of the spectrum to these heartwarming displays of love and solidarity, the notorious terrorist group ISIS claimed via their social media channels that the attack was carried out by a soldier of the Khalifa. Khalifa, more commonly known as the Caliphate, is a model of government based in the Middle East which is built upon violent, ultra-fundamentalist Islamic ideology. ISIS are, themselves by definition, their own branch of Khalifa. The message called the attack an endeavour to terrorise the non-believers and in response to their transgressions against the land of the Muslims. Indeed, ISIS had succeeded in bringing their terrorist ideology to the UK once again. 22 innocent people had lost their lives. The dead included 10 people aged under 20, the youngest victim being little Safi, and the oldest being a 51-year-old woman. Fatality number 23 was the perpetrator himself, who had detonated the bomb while it had still been strapped to him. But who was he? Before we answer that, Let's head to the next show sponsor. So before the break, we heard about fatality number 23, the perpetrator himself. But who was this despicable man? The answer to this question soon revealed itself in a somewhat gruesome fashion when the suicide bomber's severed torso and head were found amongst the carnage. The blast had propelled his upper body several feet from the epicentre of the blast, but the human remains were just intact enough to confirm he was a bomber, and later to confirm his identity. Like all jihadist suicide bombers, Salman Abadi's main characteristic was that he was too much of a coward to face up to his so-called enemies in real combat. Therefore, he did the only thing he could think of which would cause the maximum level of death and suffering with no enduring consequences for himself whatsoever. He targeted defenceless children who had no involvement in his political struggle whatsoever. No doubt this profoundly sick and deeply cowardly individual would have detonated his bomb with the pathetic, misguided belief that he was a special warrior of Islam who was carrying out God's work. However, when we take a step back and examine who Salman Abedi really was, it's beyond clear that he was anything but special. Salman Ramadan Abedi, at the time of the explosion, was a 22-year-old British Muslim of Libyan ethnicity. He was born in Manchester to a family of Libyan-born Salafis, a branch of Sunni Muslims. Abedi's parents were refugees who had settled in the south of Manchester after fleeing to the shores of the UK on a barely seaworthy boat in order to escape the tyranny and oppression of the Libyan dictator Colonel Gaddafi. Abedi had two brothers and a sister and grew up in Fallowfield, a suburb of Manchester situated about three miles south of the city centre. Looking back now, it's stunning that Salman Abedi wasn't placed on a terrorist watch list, even during his childhood years. 
Neighbours would later describe the Abadi family as very traditional and super religious. Salmon attended Wellacre Technology College, Burnage Academy for Boys and the Manchester College. A former tutor of his later remarked that Abadi was a very slow, uneducated and passive person. According to a number of media outlets, Salman had been among a group of students at his high school who had accused a teacher of Islamophobia and racism for asking them what they thought of suicide bombers. This exchange resulted in a fierce debate, with Salman aggressively yet unsuccessfully demanding that the teacher be removed from his post. After this incident had occurred, Salman reportedly commented to a group of his friends that being a suicide bomber was perfectly okay, and he went on to express some seriously concerning radical viewpoints, followed by a torrent of preachy anti-Western sentiments. His comments were so worrying that a number of his friends and fellow college students approached the school administration and raised concerns about his behaviour. As far as we know, not one of these concerns were acted upon. Salman, having been left completely unchecked, despite his friends voicing these deep concerns, continued in his downward spiral into radicalisation at home and abroad. His father was a member of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, a jihadist organisation made up of Salafi Muslims who had been repeatedly denounced and outlawed by the United Nations as a terrorist organisation. Salman, then aged just 17, travelled with his father to war-torn Libya to fight for the group in 2011, as part of the successful movement to overthrow and kill the then-president and dictator Gaddafi. After the group's victory, Salman's parents remained in Libya, while Salman returned to live in the United Kingdom. After leaving college two years later, in 2014, he took a gap year and returned with his brother Hashem to Libya to stay with his parents, where he became more involved in the terrorist group's diabolical jihadist plans. Salman was eventually injured whilst fighting alongside an ISIS terror cell. Unable to continue his armed struggle in Libya, Salman and his brother were eventually rescued from Tripoli by the British Royal Navy in August 2014 and the two men blended in with a group of 110 British citizens who were evacuated from the country as the Libyan civil war erupted into bloody chaos. Salman and his brother were taken to Malta for medical checkups and processing before being flown back to the UK where they were released without any further investigation into what they'd even been doing in Libya to begin with. Now safely back at home and still left completely to their own devices, Salman and his brother maintained close online contact with their ISIS connections back in Libya and vowed to continue fighting for their hateful cause from within the UK by any means necessary. An imam at Didsbury Mosque, where Salman and Hashem regularly worshipped, later recalled that Salman looked at him with pure hatred as he preached against ISIS the following year. Several other members of the mosque also voiced their concerns that the brothers had gone radical. Ironically, for all their high-minded ideals and alleged devotion to Islam, several friends and acquaintances of both Salman and his brother Hashem would later confirm that the brothers were outright hypocrites who regularly consumed alcohol and smoked cannabis. Both substances are strictly forbidden in Islam. Nevertheless, Salman's sister would later claim that her brother's hatred of the West was motivated not so much by religion, but more by the perceived injustice of Muslim children dying in bombings in the Middle East, which were, according to Salman, the direct result of an American-led intervention in the Syrian civil war. 
The more online anti-Western propaganda and hate speech material that Salman and Hashem consumed, the more irrationally embittered and enraged they became, until they both eventually vowed to take revenge on America and its allies by violent means. That same year, in 2014, Salman enrolled at the University of Salford, where he studied business administration. However, his lack of academic ability saw him quickly drop out of the course and he began working in a bakery in order to make ends meet. With his educational aspirations now out of the window, Salman used his student loans to finance a mission that had been sanctioned by his fellow ISIS members back in his home country of Libya. Together with his brother Hashem, Salman masterminded plans for a terrorist attack that would prove to be as heartbreaking as it was ruthless. Despite dropping out of university, Salman was somehow still able to receive his student loan funding year after year. To Salman and Hashem, this was a very convenient source of free money that they used to cover all of their expenses when it came to the planning phase of their terrorist mission. This included several trips overseas to learn bomb-making methods and techniques. On the 18th of May in 2017, just four days before the deadly attack, Salman returned to Manchester after a long trip to Libya, where he had been busy with his ISIS comrades making final preparations for his mission. As soon as he was back on British soil, he hurriedly set about buying up bomb-making materials, which he and Hashem then used to construct a deadly acetone peroxide-based bomb. The outer layers of the device were packed tightly with nuts, bolts, ball bearings and shards of scrap metal that were meant to act as shrapnel, flying debris that would, upon detonation, be propelled in all directions at devastating speed, shredding and killing anything in its path, himself included. As mentioned earlier, Salman may well have considered himself a brave warrior when he'd been a militant in Libya and he was heavily backed by his father and all of his terrorist friends, but this was different. This time he was all alone and had nobody to back him up. Salman knew that in a fair fight against his so-called enemies, he'd almost certainly get crushed, and like all cowards, he wasn't mentally or physically equipped to fight unless he knew for sure that the victims were completely unable to defend themselves. Furthermore, he also fully intended to be killed in the blast, ensuring that he himself would never have to suffer the consequences of his actions. After Salman and Hashem had considered all of these factors, they decided that the most ideal victims of their cowardly attack would be defenceless children. And so it came to pass that on that fateful night of the 22nd of May in 2017, cowards Salman and Hashem Abedi set their plan in motion specifically targeting defenceless young attendees of a pop concert at Manchester Arena. At around 8.30pm, just as Ariana Grande was beginning her set, CCTV footage shows Salman Abadi arriving at Victoria Metrolink station, carrying the rucksack stuffed full with explosives on his back. From there, he makes his way to the public toilets, where he remains in a cubicle for almost exactly 10 minutes. By nothing more than sheer bad luck, Salman left the toilets just before British transport police officers entered to conduct a security sweep. They missed Salman by just 59 seconds. At 8.51pm after leaving the toilet, Salman took the lift to the footbridge that leads to the concourse and headed towards the city room, that foyer area for the main arena. 
Here he stayed out of sight of the police, security and CCTV cameras for a full 19 minutes before retracing his steps back to the Metrolink platform where he sat on a bench for a further 16 minutes. By 9.30pm Salman must have known that the concert was coming to an end so he got up and made his way back towards the city room where he waited for people to begin streaming out of the concert room which they did at around 10pm. Salman then waited nervously until he was sure that the human traffic in the city room was at its absolute peak. At around 10.15pm he was still waiting anxiously for the right moment to detonate his explosive device. Standing there all alone, fidgeting, clearly nervous, wearing a baseball cap and carrying a huge backpack that wasn't in any way appropriate for that environment, Salman looked suspicious enough for at least one member of the public to approach a member of security staff in order to raise concerns about Salman's presence at the scene. The security guard, who later explained that he was fearful of being branded a racist should he end up wrongly accusing this man of being a terrorist, strongly hesitated to act upon the member of public's concerns. He claimed that he did eventually try to radio through to his superiors, but the line was busy, so he gave up and decided that Salman should be left alone. At 10.31pm, Salman detonated his explosive device. 22 people died instantly. More than a thousand others were injured, seriously, many of them sustaining life-changing injuries. Not only was the attack a cause for great personal devastation to the British public, it also served as a major embarrassment to the British security services and to the police. There was so much intelligence available to the police which directly pointed towards Salman Abadi and his radical behaviour and outspoken anti-Western opinions. However, he was somehow, according to a police spokesperson, not regarded as high risk, having been linked to petty crime but never flagged up for radical views. This absurd claim was widely denounced as an outright lie by multiple sources, including a community worker who later told the BBC that he had called a prevent hotline five years before the bombing to warn police about Salman's views. Even several members of the very mosque where Salman and his brother had attended for years confirmed that they too had blown the whistle about the brother's process of radicalisation, but as far as they knew, there had been no follow-up action taken to examine Salman and Hashem's behaviour. In the end, the local Muslim community leaders took the decision to ban them both from the mosque lest they managed to spread their hateful rhetoric to others. Despite all of these public revelations, in addition to many more, the Chief Constable of Greater Manchester Police insisted that neither Salman nor Hashem had been known to the Prevent Anti-Radicalisation Programme. On the 29th of May in 2017, MI5 launched an internal inquiry into its handling of the multiple sources of intelligence that they had received regarding Salman that had failed to be acted upon, as well as a separate inquiry into how it had missed the danger. Probably the most damning revelation that came out of the inquiry was that there was intelligence that Salman's name had been known to the police since as far back as 2014 when he was linked to another suspected terrorist who was under heavy surveillance at the time. Detectives found the name, photo and phone number of Salman on this terrorist suspect's phone, as well as more than 1,300 text messages between the two, which spanned all the way back to November 2014. In one message, Salman wrote, By Allah, every day, on every kneeling, I ask my Lord for martyrdom. 
He also described non-Muslims as dogs and kafars, which is a derogatory Arabic term for unbelievers, and he shared an image of the currency used by Islamic State in Syria. Despite these intense anti-Western sentiments, Salman Abadi was never placed under investigation. No reason was ever given for this. A former senior investigating officer at Northwest Counterterrorism Policing, who found the text messages, told the inquiry into the bombing that the intelligence should have been passed on for development, but simply was not. The following year, on the 22nd of November in 2018, the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament published a report which said that MI5 had acted too slowly in their dealings with Salman Abadi. The report, which contained dozens of damning examples of missed opportunities to prevent the slaughter, did little to ease the frustrations of the survivors or of the families and friends of those who had lost their lives in the attack. The committee's report noted, What we can say is that there were a number of failings in the handling of Salman Abadi's case. While it is impossible to say whether these would have prevented the devastating attack on the 22nd of May, we have concluded that as a result of the failings, potential opportunities to prevent it were missed. The only silver lining available in the case at this point was that Salman's brother and co-conspirator, Hashem Abadi, was still alive and therefore fully eligible to face trial for his involvement in the attack. The possibility of justice was still on the table. The only problem, however, was that Hashem had quickly fled the country and gone back to Libya as soon as he'd realised his brother was about to go ahead with the plan. It appeared that neither of the brothers possessed the courage to face any kind of consequences for their despicable actions. With a great need to redeem themselves for their multiple failures which had indirectly resulted in 22 fatalities as well as hundreds of destroyed lives, the British security services immediately set about hunting Hashem down and bringing him back to the UK to face trial. Working in close collaboration with government security services in Libya, it took less than 18 months to catch up with him in the Libyan capital of Tripoli, where he was detained and promptly extradited back to the UK. On the 17th of July in 2019, Hashem Abadi was charged with murder, attempted murder and conspiracy to commit an act of terrorism. His trial began on the 5th of February in 2020 and he pleaded not guilty to all charges. Hashem initially told police he wanted to cooperate with them in order to prove his innocence, but he later sacked his legal team and waived his right to attend most of the court case, preferring to stay in his prison cell instead. On the 17th of March, in a packed courtroom with most of the victim's family members in attendance, Hashem Abadi was found guilty on 22 charges of murder, on the grounds that he had helped his brother to source the materials used in the bombing and had assisted with the manufacture of the explosives which were used in the attack. So spineless and pathetic was Hashem that he didn't even have the stomach to be in the courtroom when his sentence was passed. He wasn't man enough to face the victim's families, so once again he remained in his cell. Hashem Abadi was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 55 years. The judge, Mr Justice Jeremy Baker, said that sentencing rules prevented him from imposing a whole life order as Abadi had been 20 years old at the time of the offence. The minimum age for a whole life order is 21 years old. Abadi's 55-year minimum term is the longest minimum term ever imposed by a British court. 
On the 4th of June in 2017, Ariana Grande hosted a benefit concert in Manchester entitled One Love Manchester. The concert, which was free for anyone who had been in attendance that tragic night and had survived the attack, took place at Old Trafford Cricket Ground and was broadcast live on television, radio and social media to millions of people around the world. At the concert, Grande performed along with several other high-profile artists, raising well in excess of £10 million for victims of the attack and their families. This figure has since risen to £17 million. The event was such a success that it was ranked as the number one concert of 2017. Manchester Arena itself suffered major structural damage as a result of the explosion and remained closed until September 2017, with scheduled concerts either cancelled or moved to other venues. It reopened with a benefit concert featuring Noel Gallagher and other Manchester-based performers, raising additional funds for the victims. So this is uh, a horrific terrorist attack and it's been a while since we've covered one. There's so much more that we could have discussed and I think I will wait until Bethan's back and we'll perhaps uh, do a a follow-up to this uh, where we go into the victim's stories in more detail. But for today, this is what I wanted to to cover off. So thank you for listening. Uh, We'll be back next week and um, we'll have another case for you then. We'll see you then. Bye.